Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Scott here. Winter's chill is still in the air, but March is the month for the first day of spring. The vernal equinox, as it is known in the Northern Hemisphere, will be on March 20th at 5.58 p.m. Eastern Time. But the first day of spring is not like a light switch with warmer weather automatically here. We may still have another month or so before we start to feel that warmth. In early March, darkness continues to come on later and later. The sun continues to rise a bit earlier and sets a bit later, shortening the night sky. Still, it is winter. So if I move outside just after sunset, I still need my coat. One object I like to look for each night that I'm out is the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The Dipper is found midway up in the northeast at this time of the year, putting it about as far up in the northeast as Cassiopeia, the W-shaped queen sitting on her throne, is found in the northwest. About midway between the two is Polaris, ever found at the same height above the horizon throughout the year, while the other constellations wheel around it. The North Star is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is at the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge, I know that when I step out on my front porch, the direction I am looking is generally north. Of course, as long as I can see the Big Dipper, I can always use the pair of stars marking the front bowl to lead me to Polaris. The front two stars of the Dipper are called the Pointer Stars, as a line starting with the one marking the bottom of the front of the Dipper's bowl to the one marking the lip of the bowl can be drawn to the North Star. As I slowly turn to the west, my hope is to find planets. When looking for planets, I generally look west, then east, slowly sweeping my gaze along the southern sky between these points. Two planets are found in the western sky at present. Closer to the horizon and setting quickly in the west is Mercury, while a bit higher in the west is a reddish point of light, the planet Mars. Mercury is always a bit of a challenge. As it is closer to the sun than the other planets, it appears just above the western horizon shortly after sunset in the darkening skies of dusk. In the morning skies, it pops out of dawn's glowing light, not too far ahead of the rising sun. So, when I know it is possible to see it in the western sky after sunset, if skies are clear, I try to get out and scan the western horizon. There are no bright stars near Mercury at this time, so looking to the west right after sunset means looking for the first star-like object to pop out. As it is setting almost due west, this narrows the field to look in. Mars does not stand out as well as it did earlier this year. Earlier we were close to Mars as we overtook it in our faster orbit. Now we are well ahead and leaving it behind. Mars is a smaller planet than Earth, so when we place distance between us and it, it dims quickly. Still, high up in the western sky as it is, it is the brightest star-like object found there, making it an easy spot with our eyes. Continuing to turn left, the southern sky now lies ahead, and a bright pattern of stars is visible. 
Dominating the southern sky as darkness falls is the constellation of Orion. At this time of year a hunting scene presents itself, though no such hunting scene is described in ancient tales. Most people find Orion's belt first, a line of bright stars marking his waist. Just below the belt is another line of stars, marking a sword attached to his belt. The middle star of these three appears a little hazier than the others. This is the Orion Nebula, a vast gas cloud, a nursery of new stars. The gas is contracting into individual blobs, and as the cores of these blobs get denser and hotter, nuclear fusion can begin, and a star is born. These newly born stars, some of which are quite hot, can heat the surrounding gas and cause further collapses, but their light can also excite the gas, just as gases in a neon tube are excited by electricity, causing the gas of the nebula to glow. The Orion Nebula is an easy target, even for a small telescope, and it's not overly difficult with a good pair of binoculars, say a pair of 10x50s. The rest of Orion consists of a pair of bright stars north of the belt, marking his shoulders and equally bright pair of stars south of the belt marking his knees. As constellations go, Orion is one of those few that can be imagined looking like what it's supposed to be in the sky. Orion is only the beginning of this hunting scene. Orion has two hunting dogs helping him, both near their master. Following a line of stars along the belt stars east of Orion leads to the bright star Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky far outshining, for example, the North Star. A quick scan from Sirius to Polaris, the North Star, can prove this point and put this little piece of misinformation to rest. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the Big Dog. In the early evening sky, the Big Dog is seen following Orion as a good hunting dog should. It four legs extends down and to the right of Sirius to a relatively bright star. Its back is marked by a line heading toward the east to another relatively bright star, and below and to the right of this second star are the back legs. The second dog is a puppy, and like most puppies has a short attention span. While Canis Major has its eyes on Orion, ready to help, Canis Minor, the little dog, is facing away. A line drawn along the shoulder stars of Orion, starting from the dimmer Bellatrex to the brighter and redder Betelgeuse, reaches a bright star known as Procyon. Procyon marks the head of the pup, and a star slightly higher up off the horizon and a bit dimmer marks the back of the pup. Clearly this dog is looking away from Orion, possibly romping in the field instead. Orion's quarry may not be too far in front of him, found by using his belt stars again. This time the line goes through the belt stars west of Orion, leading to Aldebaran. Aldebaran marks the fiery eye of Taurus, the bull. The rest of Taurus is a V-shaped group of stars near Aldebaran. Extending the arm of the V to two fairly bright stars reaches the tips of the horns of Taurus. Only the front half of the bull is found in the sky, with its neck and shoulders marked by a tight grouping of stars known as the Pleiades, just west of the V marking his face. The moon joins the evening sky after March the 6th, each night after, we'll see it transition from thin crescent to full moon over the next couple of weeks. On March 21st, the full moon that rises would also be a supermoon. The moon is a little closer to us in its elliptical orbit on that date. Some say they can tell the difference. Frankly, when the moon is far off the horizon way up in the sky, I don't notice it much. 
other than it is hiding constellations because of its bright light. Planets, bright stars, constellations, and with help, possibly a nebula to see. Lots to look at to reduce the day's stress on a chilly winter's evening. Thanks for filling us in on the night sky, Scott. I know I'm going to try to get out there as soon as possible and check all this out. Now, it's time for Science on the Fly. We're going to try to fill you in on some of the more interesting science news stories that are coming out these days. There's actually a lot to tell you. There's a lot of stuff going on. Like, what about this fossil that was just recently excavated in Germany? This fossil is of an animal that's related to the modern turtle. But this fossil is unusual. It appears to have a bone tumor growing out of one of its hind legs. The fossil is 240 million years old, which represents like the beginning of the Triassic Age when dinosaurs were first beginning to make an appearance on Earth. Apparently, it's extremely rare to find fossils that show signs of having a tumor. And this is the first case of cancer found in a fossilized amniote. An amniote is a kind of animal that includes the reptiles, the birds, the mammals. Now, they found cancer in fossilized amphibians before, and they've found cancer in fossilized fish bones, but never in these higher animals before. So this is pretty interesting when you consider how rare cancers are, and when you consider how rare fossils are, it's pretty amazing that they found a fossil with signs of cancer. Second topic. Researchers at Harvard just issued a report about a connection between getting goosebumps and growing hair. It turns out that the nerves and the muscles involved in developing goosebumps are nestled in our skin right next to our hair follicles. These nerves are thought to secrete a hormone that stimulates hairs to grow. They report that laboratory mice having mutations that prevent those goosebump nerves from developing those mice end up not having normal hair growth. This might be an evolutionary adaptation. Perhaps the goosebumps we get in response to cold temperatures encourages hair growth that would end up keeping us warmer. But it's not just cold temperatures that can cause goosebumps, as you know. Our skin can start to rise like this in response to intense emotions like being frightened or being euphoric or being in love or when we get the chills from hearing our favorite song. So keep this in mind if you're wanting to grow more hair or less. You might be affecting hair growth every time you venture out into the cold weather, or watch a scary movie, or ride a roller coaster, or listen to your favorite music, or fall in love. Change of topic for our third story, Ivory. Now, it's hard to believe it, but there are about 40,000 elephants killed every year just to feed the world's desire for ivory. There's a group of researchers in Seattle, though, who've been working on a new way to catch the traffickers of illegal ivory using DNA analysis. What they do is they extract DNA from the tusks found in illegal ivory shipments and basically try to examine the individual DNA fingerprints of the different tusks and try to match them with the animals. What they discovered was that tusks from the same animal often end up on different ivory shipments. 
So they were able to start linking specific shipments with individual smuggling cartels operating out of Africa. They identified three major ivory cartels in Africa that were shipping illegal ivory to the rest of the world. This research group is now working with officials from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to catch these ivory traffickers. The idea is that instead of only prosecuting a smuggler for a specific shipment of ivory, these smugglers might be able to be tied in with larger poaching activities, or they might also be able to nab larger numbers of people. Our fourth story is also about animal welfare. The Washington Post recently published an expose about how the USDA is not inspecting animal facilities like they used to. As you know, it's the responsibility of the executive branch of the federal government to enforce the country's laws. And the laws we are talking about here is the Animal Welfare Act of 1966. Well, if you compare the level of animal care inspections going on now under the Trump administration, it's significantly lower than what it was under the Obama administration. There are some 8,000 different animal facilities in the United States that fall under the Animal Welfare Act. They include places like zoos, research laboratories, and animal breeding facilities, like for breeding pets. I could tell you that farm animals are not covered under the Animal Welfare Act, and neither are birds or cold-blooded animals. They're all exempt from the Animal Welfare Act. Even laboratory rats and mice are exempt from the Animal Welfare Act. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is charged with routinely inspecting each of these 8,000 animal facilities just to make sure the animals are being cared for properly according to federal guidelines. So apparently the USDA is inspecting these facilities to make sure they are attaining the animals properly, caring for them appropriately, making sure they have the license for these animals, and they're treating the animals humanely. Well, according to the Washington Post, there's some 60% fewer animal care citations filed by the USDA in 2018 compared to the year before. And citations were down about 20% in that year compared to 2016 when Obama was still in office. By my calculation, it means that only about one-third of the number of citations for non-compliance by animal facilities were filed in 2018 compared to two years before. So this means about a two-thirds drop in citations. Now, it's partly due to there being fewer USDA inspectors to actually visit the animal facilities, but there also appears to be a policy of not citing facilities for violations as much now as there used to be. The USDA is now saying that their officials are working with licensees more to resolve problems and not insisting on filing official documents. So it sounds like it's more of a voluntary thing now. In early 2017, right after Trump took office, the USDA removed many of its records about animal inspections from their publicly available online database. After complaints from animal welfare advocates, some of these records were restored, but many were still redacted and others are only available upon request. And the Washington Post says that it can take months to get those requested documents. So it looks to me like the Trump administration is at least consistent. Not only do they not seem to care about people very much, but they might not care much about animals either. Our fifth story is about social media. 
The official group of top medical officers in the United Kingdom just issued an advisory to parents about reducing the amount of social media that their children are exposed to. The advisory group is sort of like the Surgeon General's office here in the United States. After they reviewed the research literature on this topic, the physicians observed that there appeared to be a link between the use of social media by young people and mental health. They concluded that lengthy social media use could be having negative effects on depression, sleep patterns, self-esteem, body image, bullying, and harassment. But the group admitted that they didn't really understand the cause and effect relationship between social media and these different problems. They aren't sure whether social media might be encouraging mental health issues in children or whether children with mental health issues are just attracted more to social media. By the way, online harassment and bullying appear to be impacting some 40% of the girls and 25% of the boys using social media. These British experts concluded that it was the content and the context of the social media that was the issue rather than just the number of hours spent using social media. Their suggestions include not letting children take their smartphones to bed with them, not looking at screens during meals, and not letting children upload so many videos, music clips, and apps. Finally, they recommended that children get out and get more exercise. News story number six. Some good news. A giant tortoise species that had not been seen for some 113 years has just been spotted. It's a Fernandina tortoise, a species that used to live on the island of Fernandino in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador. Actually, there's no documentation of a scientist ever seeing a living Fernandina tortoise before. They found the body of a deceased male of this species back in 1906, but they've suspected that the tortoises were still around based on the droppings found on the island. Researchers trekked over three miles of hardened lava rock to reach a habitat on the island that they thought might house this turtle. And after looking around there for two more days, they found this living female buried deep under a pile of brush. They've putatively identified the tortoise as a Fernandino tortoise because of its shell characteristics, but they're going to do DNA analysis later to really confirm that. The tortoise is a female, and they think she's more than 100 years old. This tortoise appears healthy, but it is underweight, which isn't surprising since the land it was grazing on is mostly covered by volcanic rock and really doesn't have that much vegetation. The biologists have decided to relocate this tortoise to a breeding center on a different Galapagos island to ensure her survival. It turns out that female tortoises can store and retain sperm for up to three years, so it's hoped that this one might eventually be giving birth. They're also going to look for a male of the same species on this island to serve as a potential mate. This breeding center that they're going to use has experience doing this kind of thing. They've already successfully bred and released some 4,000 different Galapagos turtles over the years. The lead biologist on this project, who also happens to be the host of a TV show on Animal Planet called Extinct or Alive, 
He's quoted as saying, quote, I believe she can become an icon of wildlife hope. She's the rarest tortoise, if not animal, in the entire world and one of the largest discoveries in the Galapagos in the last century, unquote. The Galapagos Islands have a special place in the hearts of most biologists and geologists. It's the place that the young Charles Darwin studied for five weeks during his voyage on the HMS Beagle back in the 1830s. It was the varied wildlife that he observed on these islands that eventually inspired him to develop his theory of natural selection, which is now commonly referred to as evolution. So this is almost a historic find. Hey, how about a story about anthropology? Anthropologists recently completed a large-scale analysis of the now-extinct classic-era ruins of Mayan cities in northern Guatemala. They used LIDAR to map these ancient cities that date somewhere between 250 A.D. and 900 A.D. Now, LIDAR involves photographing the terrain with these pulses of laser where they measure how long it takes for the light to return to its source. Plus, they can look at the wavelengths of the returned laser light, and they're able to put together three-dimensional images of the land that they're surveying. Now, they also surveyed the land by foot, and they made excavations. They examined some 280 square miles of land in northern Guatemala. Apparently, there are some surprises to be found in this analysis of northern Guatemala. They determined that the Mayan cities were much larger than they previously had thought. They now estimate that between 7 to 11 million people inhabited this northern Guatemalan region during this period. Again, we're talking 250 to 900 A.D. Well, there's currently about 17 million people living in, in the entire country of Guatemala, So that means that there's probably the same number of people inhabiting this area now as there were back then. That's that's rather amazing. They found sophisticated water canals built for irrigating and draining their farms. Some channels ran for more than a third of a mile. The Mayan farmers appeared to be making quite a bit of effort to reduce soil erosion because they were using drainage channels and they built terraces. And this all conflicts with previous beliefs that the Mayans practiced soil-damaging-slash-and-burn farming on this land. They were actually careful farmers. And even though they were efficient and environmentally aware farmers, these ancient Mayan cities probably were not able to grow sufficient amounts of food for cities as large. So researchers assumed that food was probably shipped in from other locations. They did find raised roads that would allow for long-distance transport to other cities. These roads varied from 30 to 60 feet across and extended up to 13 miles away. There was evidence of a number of defensive structures built at this time, like stone walls, ramparts, ditches, terraces, and strategically placed bridges, suggesting that there were military concerns at this time, too. The researchers found roads leading outside of the area that they had been studying, so they hoped to expand their mapping effort in the future. This will undoubtedly tell us even more about the fascinating Mayan culture and people. Story number eight. Have you heard about these rich, wealthier people who are paying young folks for blood transfusions? The idea is that receiving blood from a young person will prevent aging as well as treat diseases like dementia 
Parkinson's disease, heart disease, and even post-traumatic syndrome? Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has just issued an official statement cautioning against this approach. It costs thousands of dollars, and they say it doesn't really work anyway, and in fact could be dangerous. The FDA is warning that people who receive plasma transfusions from others like this put themselves at greater risk of allergies, circulatory overload, lung disease, and infectious disease. They say that there's no proven clinical benefit to transfusions like this. They recommend that no one pursue this type of plasma transfusion unless it's an FDA-approved clinical trial done at a recognized research institution. In response to this FDA statement, one startup company in California that has been offering this service announced that it was going to stop offering these treatments. Up to now, they've been offering a liter of plasma from a young donor for $8,000. Two liters of young plasma would only have set you back $12,000. Well, I agree with the FDA on this one. The research literature isn't very convincing, apparently. It seems dangerous, and I don't trust something that is being offered by private companies that charge so much. Plus, I wonder, who are these young donors? Are you sure they don't have medical problems of their own that haven't been diagnosed yet? you sure they haven't been using drugs or been exposed to environmental toxins or strange chemicals that might still be in the plasma? Seems like there could be more holistic ways of treating aging. And our final News on the Fly story today. A recent study reported on the inheritance of the spots on the fur of Maasai giraffes of Tanzania. Now, giraffes aren't the only animals that have spots or modeling patterns on their fur. Tigers have it, jaguars, zebras, and it's thought that these kind of animals have this modeling pattern in their fur to act as camouflage so that they could hide from predators. Or they might be there for regulating body temperature, or they might be a signal to others about what species or tribe or family they belong to. In this latest paper, they report that newborn giraffes with larger, more irregularly shaped spots do have a better chance of surviving the first few months of life compared to giraffes with smaller, more regularly spaced spots. So the size and the shape of those spots on giraffes actually matter. Now, the researchers didn't do any direct molecular or DNA analysis, but when they were comparing the spotting patterns of 31 offspring versus the two parents that bore them, they noticed that it was the spotting pattern of the mother that was more highly correlated with the spotting pattern of the offspring. The roundedness of the spot was similar between the offspring and the mother, the smoothness of the borders. They were all strikingly similar between the mother, giraffe, and their calves. So remember this next time you go to the zoo. There are a number of Maasai giraffes at the Louisville Zoo, and some of them do belong in family units. So next time you go, see if you can spot the mother and the child based on the spotting patterns on the fur. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, 
benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.